Hello, hello, hello. So who knew there can be up to 27 hormone disrupting chemicals in mainstream period products? It's a really shocking fact that not many people are aware of, considering you're putting period products in or near your body every single month. However, Riley period products, on the other hand, contain zero bleach, toxins or harmful chemicals. And I'm absolutely delighted to announce that Riley are sponsoring my podcast this month. Riley is an Irish female founded period care subscription service for 100% organic cotton products. They believe you've got the right to know exactly what you're putting into your body every month, which is exactly why they started this business. They also don't want to lock you into anything, which is why you can cancel and reactivate your subscription at any time. No strings attached. And they've kindly given me a discount code for 15% off your first three months of period products. Simply head to their website, www.wearereilly.com and you can use the code SHANE15, S-H-A-N-E-1-5 and get your eco period products conveniently delivered to you and when you need them the most. Hello, hello, hello and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Podcast. So really excited for you guys to hear the new episode today with Simon Hill and because it's, it's very thought provoking. And it'll make you question a few things that you probably believe in and hate to dissect that information as well. So Simon Hill is a physiotherapist, nutritionist and author on a mission to help people make informed lifestyle choices with a love for science and the qualifications to translate it properly. He makes health and nutrition information simple and accessible for people as well. And Simon has adopted a plant-based approach to his lifestyle. And one of the things that we talk about is what is a healthy diet. And I think this topic in particular is going to resonate with an awful lot of people and also change the definition and dynamic of what a lot of people believe what a healthy diet is. We also talk about can you boost your immune system with foods or nutrition or whatever it may be. We also talk about the inform- the misinformation that's out there and how to understand that and dissect it from a point of view of actually challenging the narrative what to look out for what to not look out for we also talk about can you train yourself out of a bad diet so there's a lot in there and i think it's there was so much more that we could have covered i sent over so many more questions and things like that but there was a lot of things that we kind of went through Simon has an amazing podcast called The Proof Podcast and he's had some incredible guests that are breaking down a lot of the most complex information into something that a lot of people can understand on a day-to-day basis and some of them include Lane Norton, some include Alan Flanagan, there's many many more included in there as well so hopefully you learned something from this episode so I really hope you enjoy this episode with Simon Hill. Simon how are we sir? Very good, Shane. Looking forward to uh, chatting all things health and wellness. Thank you so much for having me. No problem at all. I know it's uh, it's great. I love doing the podcast because it, it allows me to interview and chat with people from all over the world. I know it's the, mm-hmm. the evening for you and morning for me. So I appreciate you you coming on. For anyone who isn't aware of who you are and what you do and of the, the amazing podcast that you have, kind of give us a little bit more information and background. Sure. Um I guess I started my early career as a physiotherapist. Um, some parts of the world call that a physical therapist and uh, went straight into working in, in sort of um, the sports med field, uh, working with footballers in Australia. The, the professional code here is called AFL. Um, I'd always wanted to go down the, that sort of track of sports physiotherapy. I played a lot of sport myself as a junior and um, just something about the camaraderie and the team environment. I was I was really attracted to to that, and so I went and did that and pursued that. And 
um, really enjoyed my time doing that. And then eventually went back to university, did a, a master's in nutrition science and uh, further fell in love with science. And that was something that my my kind of dad had introduced to me many, many uh, years earlier and um, went down a lot of rabbit holes about nutrition and um, <laughs> realized how confused I was and how confused most of the world was. Um, and yeah, fell in love with that process of, of looking at evidence, trying to explore the nuance, make sense of things. And then the hardest part, work out how to communicate that to people where you are honoring the science, but making it palatable as well and something that someone can actually access and use to improve their, their uh, eating behaviors and, and ultimately their health. So I uh, finished the, the, the masters in nutrition science and then um, decided that I, I really wanted to further both my understanding of this space but also help people by doing uh similar to yourself having conversations and i felt like one of my strengths um was a curiosity and and also just an understanding that my 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 knowledge base is very likely you know much much less or my, i know much uh less about this topic than that than perhaps um i think i know and you know why not use this great platform and and really an opportunity to connect to career scientists people who have been in the field for 10 20 30 years running the experiments um or working as clinical um folks and and trying to tap into some of that knowledge and give them a platform and um so that's really what i spend most of my time doing now uh other than reading the research myself and trying to make sense of everything just having these these conversations and tackling some of the 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 areas of confusion and recently i've broadened my show to not just focus on on nutrition that's obviously uh, a major focus but um you know i think we can all agree there's more to our health than just the food as important as it is um that we can think about and so um we've been tackling other topics like the the mental health side of things and mindset and exercise and um yeah having fun fun sort of broadening the show i like it there's some amazing guests and i like the way that you kind of like when you i i've realized this myself from going into a certain topic as further you go into it you realize how little you actually know <laughs> Yeah. It, it, it's just, it's quite scary and i love having these chats because there's some little nugget or some way they someone else explains something that will help you mm -hmm. to with your clients if that makes any mm -hmm. sense you mentioned there about kind of like people aren't i don't know haven't been educated or haven't put the time into kind of learning about nutrition there's so many myths and where to get the information from it's very hard it's a rabbit hole and you can go down mm -hmm kind of a tribal route of like oh, i'm going to be a keto person or whatever it may be don't know why that's the first thing that came to my head but i went to it um but how can we kind of protect ourselves um from against information that's out there regarding regarding nutrition mm. and health and all that kind of stuff it's a really um great question something that i think about all the time um i guess the one of the first things that i would say is that we even if you you aren't trained in reading science and and sort of making sense of the evidence base. I think most people can understand that not all evidence is equal. And and so where I'm going with that is that 
if you come across someone that has a, a certain view and that's contradictory to another view, it doesn't mean that those two views are equal in terms of their weight. And so often we we find this situation of like false equivalence and we can we can easily land in this position where we go, well, you know, we've got people over here saying this, people here saying this. So we really have no idea. But if you were to inspect the evidence that these two parties are citing and you could make sense of the science, which is the difficult part, you would see that that's not the case, even though it may be represented as that. Um, so I think understanding that not all science is is equal is important. Um, understanding that having a very absolute uh, position and a silver bullet is very attractive. Um, it's a it's an it's an easy thing to market the the more sort of extreme position. And um, this is something that I often get people to look out for when you're listening to someone speaking about something. Are they super overconfident and it's all very black and white and they have it all worked out? Or are they leaving some room in there, you know, suggests or may, or do they even say, look, I don't actually have an answer for that because <laughs> we've got gaps in the literature. Um, those are the types of things that I've really um, come to appreciate. And it, through having conversations with a lot of scientists who who really do honor the the data that's out there and try and represent it as best as possible you hear that that's the type of language that they're using which is very different uh, or distinct to some of the language that you might see on social media um i look out for sort of hyperbole where you know there's a there's a lot of fear being or emotion being generated in what someone's saying so um you know they got it wrong or like blaming that some other third party, um, but then they have the answer, you know, and and they've wrapped it up in some sort of program or or product. That's a that's a little bit of a, a red flag for me. Um, and the other the other thing that and I think this has become quite evident recently is if you see someone who has a contrarian position. I find it, I always find it interesting. I'm not sure if you've seen this, but, and I was actually speaking with Alan Flanagan about this is that through COVID, we saw people that have very contrarian positions with nutrition all of a sudden became COVID experts yeah. and had very contrarian ex, ex, um, opinions about COVID. And I think that's another red flag. If you just see someone, no matter what the topic, it's not even their field of expertise and they're just taking a contrarian position just consistently, consistently, consistently. Are they really spending the time to understand that subject and to take that position? Or is it just something about their worldview that sees them land in this position where they're just highly skeptical about absolutely everything? Um, and And then I would probably round this out by saying, um, an overemphasis on an anecdote, and this is this is really important because you mentioned sort of keto, but this goes for any diet: vegan diet, carnivore diet, whatever. We we know that people can improve their health on a number of different diets, at least in the short term, and um, you know there are some unifying features of of potentially what what. Um, lead to that, and weight loss is one is a is a really really big one. And so, quite often, you'll see 
online and I'm bringing this back to nutrition, but I guess what we're talking about sort of applies to a number of topics. You'll see someone, let's say perhaps they lost a lot of weight on a high carb plant-based diet. And, you know, you might run into this person on on Twitter and they're 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 very sure that this is the best way to lose weight for absolutely everyone. Right. And what happens is they're they're placing too much stock in their personal experience and assuming that this then applies to everyone. But we know that's not the case because for every anecdote on the high carb diet where someone lost a lot of weight, there's also the anecdote on the low carb diet where someone also lost a lot of weight. Um, and so I think that the the untrained person within science um, who has had a really positive experience unfortunately makes the mistake of assuming the changes that they made. And often they're not they're actually not sure of all the changes they made. Um, they'll, for example, someone might say, I removed seed oils and everything about my health improved. But where were those seed oils coming from? They were coming from a lot of ultra-processed foods. So there's a lot of confounding variables in there. Um, and is it that the seed oils were to blame or is it the fact that you remove ultra-processed, hyper-palatable, very calorie-dense foods and now you're eating more whole foods? Um, so I think just overemphasizing an anecdote, realizing going back to my first uh, area where I started here, not all evidence is equal. And an anecdote, they're really, they are interesting and they can be hypothesis generating, um, but they're they're not a valid form of, of evidence for us to be using to come to public health recommendations and, and very far from it, actually. And what about the kind of evidence-based kind of bracket that a lot of people have kind of jumped into or latched onto because I don't think an awful lot of people know what evidence-based actually means. They think it's because I read a paper, this is what it is. Mm -hmm. What? Yeah. Where do you stand on what does it actually mean? <laughs> yeah, that's, a, I mean, if you look at any blog or post on social now, maybe the first couple of words a study showed. Yeah. And, and, and is that evidence-based just because, well, I'd say that's an ability to cite some form of evidence. But for me, evidence-based comes back to first appreciating that there are different forms of evidence and um, understanding the hierarchy, being able to look at the totality of the evidence, um, understanding, oh, let's, let's take a step back. What type of study are we talking about here? What population are we talking about? Um, what type of tools, questionnaires were used? Are they validated? Um, so getting into the evidence base would mean fully understanding how to look at the study methodology and going through that, um, as well as understanding the results and the different analyses that the the researchers used in that paper um, to, to calculate the effect sizes. Um, Evidence-based would mean looking at the limitations of a study and actually um, communicating those when talking about the studies. So perhaps there uh, is a new study out, but maybe it was a study on eight males. And maybe it's very tightly controlled and has some really interesting findings, And but these were healthy 
uh, adult males in their 20s. Now, do we want to get carried away and says, say that this applies to everyone? Well, it, it might, but maybe we need this same study to be replicated in females. Maybe we need it to be replicated in elderly men, um, for example. So the kind of um, what we can extrapolate from the study um, or what we cannot. And um, then I would say reproducibility. And this is really important because often, um, particularly when someone has a kind of knock on on industry funded studies, this is something that I will um, usually talk about. Is you know an industry funded study perhaps is reason to to maybe look a little bit deeper, maybe maybe be a little bit more skeptical. Look at the methodology, um, but if you can't pick a, a fault in the methodology, and that study is being reproduced across different um, research labs around the world with the different people, and they're all coming to the same conclusions. I'm not sure you can just say we, we have to disregard this because it's funded by industry. Um, but the main point that I was getting there is, again, if you're evidence-based, you're looking at the totality of the evidence and you're looking for reproducibility of a finding. Is it consistent? Are we seeing converging lines of evidence as well? So reproducibility within the one study, so um, whether that's an observational study or an intervention, different studies with a similar study design coming to the same result. And sometimes that could be bundled up into what's called a meta-analysis. But a meta-analysis is not always perfect because if those studies have a very different study design, they might not come together that well. And sometimes you're actually better at looking at a few of the, the randomized controlled trials or the interventions that were performed really, really well, as opposed to a, a meta-analysis. And then being able, from a totality of evidence, take another step back, converging lines from different types of studies. So are we seeing something at a mechanistic level that we have a hypothesis, say it's a, a, a in a petri dish or in an animal model that we then yeah we see that play out in big populations we, you know we, we we see that um our hypothesis generated from those animal studies is proven in the observational or at least they're pointing in the same direction and then when we look at randomized controlled trials again converging lines of evidence all pointing in that same um same direction that's that's where we're getting more and more certain and this is a great point science is never going to be definitive all we're trying to do is reduce uncertainty right we always have a degree of uncertainty with with all of this stuff um but we're looking for these patterns and and, and different pieces of evidence to reduce uncertainty and to be more certain of of the hypotheses that we hold or be less certain and change them I think what I always say to people if they're kind of talking is like scientists sometimes at one point thought the earth was flat. So the the, the, right. the, the science can be interpreted, but it could also be like it, it's up mm -hmm. there to be changed and looked into that a little bit more mm -hmm. because so much has changed in the last little while. There's more research and more funding being put into things now. And particularly with what I do mainly is working with with females around mental health. There's not enough research done on mental health. Mm -hmm. All the training stuff, all the nutrition stuff was mainly done right. on men. So it's a new field. So whatever's coming mm -hmm. out is new. And now then we just have to evolve it from there. So it's mm -hmm. kind of learning how to question what the bias that you're bringing to it, learning mm -hmm. where the information is coming from and where this, 
studies done on rats if they're done on rats rats are not humans it's the t- it's the studies i have to yeah. read through a lot with clients one of the big questions i think is what is a healthy diet because i think when people say i'm um, i'm eating healthy or i'm meat less nutrition or i'm eating mm. i hate these words bad but what's a healthy diet to you because i think it's going to be very mm. very different person to person yeah i would start very broadly and and start with um a, a way a, a way of eating that leaves you with a, a healthy relationship with your food um would be a big tick that's before we're even getting into the makeup of that diet um it's something that you enjoy and you can sustain because you know there's too many conversations i think happening um or or diets being promoted where they're going to be very difficult for people to sustain and and really if we are interested in someone's health and wellness then we want to inspire behavior change that they can integrate into their life and it becomes something they are able to stick to over decades not weeks ideally um of course there are certain therapeutic interventions i know you know low fodmap diet and and whatever that are sort of caveats to that um or maybe someone has a, a very specific reason body composition goal for a bodybuilding competition or, or something where things might deviate but or be short term but um in general a healthy diet is something that people enjoy and they can sustain over the long term um and from a uh if we were to go down the next level i would say I think it's something that um, people are able to enjoy and also maintain a healthy body weight would be important. Um, we can get into body weight and, I guess, subcutaneous fat versus visceral fat if you want later in, in this and um, some of the interesting things to kind of think about there. But um, I think that's that's important and and I think recognising on that point there's a lot of fighting over macronutrient ratios and and whatnot. And I think that, and I'll come to the quality of the diet, but I think the quality of the diet is so much more important than fighting over whether it's low carb or whether it's high carb and just accepting that some people may do better on low carb and some people may do better on high carb. And there are studies like the diet fit studies out of uh, diet fit study out of Stanford um, by professor Christopher Gardner and colleagues and they showed exactly that you know 12 month plus study and often people say oh these these studies they don't use high quality diets but professor gardner he made sure there was no dummy diet in this study so sometimes you might have like a plant-based diet put up against a control diet and the control diets it's a crappy diet so it's it's kind of set up for the plant-based diet to win and and in reverse mind you something that you, you need to look at in these studies is compared to what um, but in in this in diet fits, it was a high quality low carb diet, so no ultra processed foods, whole foods, versus a high quality high carb diet. Again, no ultra processed foods or refined grains, high quality. And they worked with dietitians and seven hundred odd subjects, twelve months. Average weight loss in the two groups, non significantly different. So. Um, people who have had success, say, on a low-carb diet or a high-carb diet who then hear that, they don't always like that um, because, you know, they believe that their diet's the best. Um, now, what really interestingly, 
what the researchers did was they said, okay, that's interesting. On average, there was no difference, but why don't we look at each group and see what happened within the groups? And what they saw was in the low-carb group, some people did really well and some did very poorly. In the high-carb group, some people did really well and some people did really poorly. And they tried to see if they could predict what might um, lead to someone doing well on a high-carb versus a low-carb. That would be really interesting. Imagine we could do that today. You sit down with someone and um, just check a couple of things and go, oh, look, you're, you're actually going to do much better on low-carb. Unfortunately, they couldn't. Um, they weren't able to predict. They used a few things like insulin resistance and looked at a couple of genes, but they couldn't. They weren't able to predict. So it may well be behavioral. It could be that. You know, the people that did well on low-carb, when they went home, their family also loved eating low-carb and it was easy for them to to adhere to. Um, so, uh, I my point that where I started this was that I think flexibility in macronutrient ratio um, and realizing that it, it might not be the same for everyone. And what's most important is the quality of, of, of the food. And so, you know, my... My position, um, and I believe the evidence is, is very clear on this, is that when it comes to fat, I don't think we need to eat less fat or low fat. Um, I think we need to eat better fat. And for some people, it might they might choose to eat a high-fat diet with good quality fats, and some people um, may, may eat less fat, but it's still of a, a good quality. And when I say good quality, it's mostly the unsaturated fats, monounsaturated fats and, and polyunsaturated fats from foods like fatty fish, nuts and seeds, avocado and olive oil, and just trying to take it easier on the foods that are really rich in saturated fats. And that's not just uh, red meat and butter, but it's it's also tropical oils like coconut and, and, and palm oil. Um, and same, same um, story for carbohydrates. So again, you could go low carb or you could go high carb, but what matters most is what are, what's the quality of those carbohydrates? And the best way for me to simplify this is, are those carbohydrates you're consuming coming wrapped with fiber? If they are, then thumbs up, it's whole grains, fruits, vegetables, legumes, um, that's great. But if it's the white flour products, um, like the biscuits and the cookies and the cakes, probably not so good in excess anyway. A little bit of that stuff's not going to be a huge problem in the overall, if the overall dietary pattern, and, and we might elaborate on that, is 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 healthy and, and you're consistent with that. Um, so that's, uh, that's carbohydrates. And then I'd say from a protein um, point of view, I think – you know, there's there's certainly room for animal products in an optimal diet, and so I myself I actually don't eat animal foods, um, but I'm definitely not of the position that animal foods cannot be in a healthy optimal diet. I think that the evidence is pretty clear they can be. I think you want to be sensible on which ones you include and to what sort of extent. Um, but I would say if we look at the average person's diet in a Western country today, like Australia or in Ireland or um, in the US, about 70 to 85% of their daily protein intake is coming from animal protein. And there is quite a lot of data showing that when you swap calories from animal protein for plant protein, particularly if it's coming from legumes, 
um, it's it's a substitution that results in very positive changes to cardiometabolic risk factors like your um, LDL cholesterol or more specifically ApoB containing lipoproteins. And again, I might be throwing out some terms that are, are confusing, but um, just to to kind of summarize why that animal protein for plant protein swapping some of those calories is good is that usually with that it's not just a protein for protein swap usually what happens is you lower your saturated fat intake in that swap and you increase your fiber intake in that swap which is good from a cholesterol point of view and the average person's um cholesterol today in in countries like ours is is well above the level where we don't see atherosclerosis, that plaque getting laid down in the artery, um, you know, considerably higher than than where we would want it and where we see people not laying down plaque. So um, when I think of an optimal diet, these are all the things that I think about. It starts with enjoyment, adherence has to be there, diet quality, and within that I think about eating more unsaturated fats, eating more whole carbohydrates, where that are um, rich in fiber and leaning more into to plant protein and that's a superb answer for what is a healthy diet something that doesn't impact your relationship with food i think right. when, as, as soon as you said that i was kind of like well what starts first is it your is the does the diet start first first or is it kind of adjusting your mindset when you're starting out on a diet what what do you think goes first it's a great question um in terms of whether you enjoy it or not whether you can sustain it i think is the biggest because people are all we're all great at looking mm -hmm. for quick fixes whether it be finance mm -hmm. whether it be love life whether it be weight loss or building mm -hmm. muscle whatever it may be but what comes first can you go on a diet and then adjust your mindset or should you adjust your mindset first and then go on a diet i honestly um having Having sort of gone over this many times with many people now, I I think it depends on the person. And so yeah. some people, some people, and I think it, I think this is a smaller percentage of people can just mindset switch and then overnight change things. Yeah, it's, it's, it's I'd say it's probably ten percent. Right. Whereas whereas with other people, I think actually taking a bit of pressure off, having to sort of do it perfectly and make huge changes overnight. Um, is a better approach for them. They're more likely to su succeed. So it's more um, around making sort of micro changes and doing making changes over over a longer period of time, and they're more likely to build that enjoyment through that that process and get to a point where they're at a a very healthy dietary pattern and they are enjoying it. Whereas if they made the change overnight, they'd be miserable. Might last a couple of weeks. And then they revert back to the way that they were eating. Um, I missed out a point that I, I, I should have sort of just summarized what I was saying was that that sort of healthy, optimal diet that I just described, um, the, the other, I think, really interesting thing is it gives people a lot of choice. That could be a Mediterranean diet. It could be a pescatarian diet. It could be a vegetarian diet. It could be a whole food plant exclusive diet. And um, I guess that type of explanation is is not really it's not going to sell a lot of books, um, but but um, it's a good thing because it does actually mean that we have some choice and hopefully it's that choice that leads to people 
um, landing on a diet that they can adhere to stick with long term. Yeah, because I think uh, from experience of working with clients, it's people can be too quick to take something out of their diet. And as you said, kind of like correlation versus causation with I was low carb and I lost weight and I was successful. But you're kind of asking what was successful. Well, you lost 10 kg, but you put back on 15. So that may not be mm. successful, but you may have been more content in that and you may enjoy it. But it's realizing that's maybe a short term Mm. result for you and not going into it that it may be short term rather than probably addressing the the language or the relationship with food if you want to go mm. down that route so it's there's a lot of caveats to it and it's finding what's individual to the person like if i know when i've dieted i prefer higher carb i don't particularly mm. enjoy fats mm. so i feel better off them i don't feel i i need my energy so i prefer them um and i just feel a little bit more sluggish off fats on my my son right. didn't really like them so i because i prefer the fiber fills me up a little bit more i think mm. people forget that fruit veggies all that kind of stuff are carbohydrates as well we just think mm. of carbohydrates as cakes bread right whatever yeah, it may be that, yeah exactly yeah those carbs it's yeah. a different bracket yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um one of the other things that kind of has come in to the kind of like the media in the last little while is kind of immune system. And I was definitely brought up during kind of the last two and a half years of during COVID and stuff. Can we actually boost our immune system through various different means like nutrition and stuff, or is that complete and utter hocus pocus? Um, I want to be careful how I respond to this uh, because, because look, I think that the way the lay audience is using the term boost is different to the medical community. So if I was to, to sort of answer this question from, um, is, it, is it accurate to say that you, you want to boost your immune system? No. From a medical point of view, you know, an overactive immune system boosting it in many cases is a deleterious thing, particularly during COVID, right? Um, so... But that's not to say that people that are using the word boost, I think in sort of general, there's sure there's some charlatans that are selling things online. That's a little different. But I mean, like general people, like I can imagine my mom sitting down having coffee and talking about boosting her immune system with uh, with their friends. And I'm not sure, you know, what she'd be talking about exactly, but she might use that terminology with good intent. I think she is more talking about just building a strong, a robust immune system. Um, so... I guess just to clarify to to listeners, probably saying boost is technically not correct. Um, you know, a, a stronger immune system, an immune system that's better equipped to to respond to any sort of invasion or, or pathogens is is kind of um, what we're after. And um, you know, in certain circumstances, we we want less um, sort of inflammatory biomarkers floating around. Um, and certainly nutrition can, can, can influence this. Um, we know, and that this is very tightly, um, regulated by the microbiome and the health of your microbiome, which, um, you know, 70% of your immune system is, is sitting very, very closely to your microbiome and interacting directly, um, and there was, you know, there was evidence recently um, out of Stanford University, and and gave gave me uh, pause and good good sort of motivation to eat more fermented foods, um, and they were interested in this exact sort of area of science. If you if you feed, they were actually compared fiber and fermented foods, 
um, you know, I think most people have have sort of heard people talk about fiber and and some types of fiber feeding the microbiome. And of course, fermented foods are interesting because they actually contain bacteria. You know, often you hear about probiotic-rich fermented foods, you know, yogurt or kombucha, kefir, these sorts of foods. And so um, they they wanted to look at um, human subjects this is out of Stanford, feed feed some of them fiber, feed some of them fermented foods, and look at changes in the microbiome, but also look at how the immune system is responding. And how do these foods modulate the immune system? And they did that by looking at about 200 plus different inflammatory proteins. So these inflammatory proteins will go up if there is inflammation present, if you're provoking a, a, an immune response, which is not what we're after here. And um, very interesting findings because their hypothesis was that the fiber would just be great across the board. And this comes back to what you and I were just talking about with regards to how quickly you make changes to your diet. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what they found on the fiber side first. So they actually found only some of those subjects had, had a, a decrease in inflammatory markers, proteins, after consuming the fiber. And they went from 20 to 40 grams of fiber. That was the jump they made with a little ramp little um, increase slowly over a few weeks and then 10 weeks of this diet. And they they thought, that's interesting. Why, why, why was it only some subjects who, when they had fiber, their inflammation went down, whereas other subjects actually, when they increased their fiber, their inflammation went up. And they went back and looked at their baseline microbiome diversity. And people who had very low diversity if you added fiber to their diet, it actually increased inflammation. And you might think, well, well that's interesting. And, and we do know that having a, a diverse microbiome is associated with, with better health. And um, things that might lead to a less diverse microbiome are you know, decades of eating a very refined fiber-deplete diet, um, potentially antibiotic overuse. Antibiotics can be life-saving, but um, potentially in certain circumstances could be overused, which could um, reduce that diversity of the microbiome, um, you know, reduce levels of, of breastfeeding, more C-sections, all this sort of stuff, living in a more sterile environment. These are things that can damage the microbiome and so their hypothesis is that people who had this sort of lower microbiome diversity at baseline if you just added a whole lot of fiber to them it actually increased their inflammation and i think that this they're going to do more studies but this helps us sort of understand why sometimes you'll hear from people when they increase their fiber they don't feel so good whereas other people are able to tolerate it and it might be where they're coming from in terms of their microbiome diversity, and it might be, um, and they're going to test a bunch of things, but it might be those people just need to go slower. Yeah. So, so add less fiber and do it over a long period of time, slowly ramping it up, just like if you're in the gym and trying to progressively overload a muscle um, rather than trying to lift the heaviest weight on day one. It might be that... Um, you know, adding something with it like a, a prebiotic supplement or a probiotic, but they haven't tested that. That's something they're going to look into um, if there's anything they can do to kind of help those people. 
very interestingly, let me slide over to the other side of the study, across the board, the addition of the fermented foods drove inflammatory proteins down and it was super consistent. Um, more than 19 different inflammatory proteins went down um, in this group. And again, they were consuming kraut, kimchi, yogurt, kombucha, all these sorts of um, fermented foods. So um, long-winded way to say, yes, our nutrition can affect our immune system. We don't necessarily want to boost it, but we want to um, help support it and, and strengthen it and um this study is just evidence of one type of food that you may want to incorporate into your diet to do that. I really like the kind of the substitution of the wording of boosting going to substituting or kind of adding to mm -hmm. it. And I, I can think I can see I can see clients just not in their head from kind of trying to go from maybe four grams of fiber a day to 25 grams of fiber in the space mm -hmm. of a week. And that bloating feeling, that gassy feeling, and you're kind mm. of not able to, it's just a lot of it, a lot of discomfort, particularly if someone has it's coming from an IBS background or they haven't had veggies or some fiber or some fruit mm -hmm. in a very long time. It can be a little bit overwhelming. So slow and steady can work for some people. Others, it can go very, very quickly. And it's, it, I think that's great mm -hmm. advice. You mentioned there about kind of the training side of things, and we're kind of going to shift over that side of things. What can you actually train yourself out of a bad diet? I hate the word bad diet, but it's the only term I can think of when it kind of comes to this. Oh, gosh. I wish I could give you a <laughs> black and white answer. I wish I could give you a, a really, really simple answer, but um, this is complicated. And look, if, if, you can, if you can do exercise and you're very consistent with it and your diet's not amazing but you're able to manage you're able to maintain a healthy body weight you're going to be healthier for that that said we we have well i mean there's lots of evidence showing that you don't have to be say overweight to develop atherosclerosis you don't have to be overweight to develop liver fat and we have clinical intervention trials where people are not gaining weight where you change the types of food and the types of nutrients they're eating and you see things like increased liver fat deposition for example so not everything is about body weight and excess calories um so i i know this question this outrun a bad diet comes up a lot but i i don't i don't love it um you can you can significantly improve your health by doing exercise despite having a bad diet but you can make your overall health much better if you couple the two together. That's probably the best answer I can give you there. I think it's. I think it's, it is the best answer because, it, like, it is. It um, generally with nutrition and training and stuff, it depends. Is generally the answer. But it also mm -hmm. like you could have someone who's underweight but have a very poor nutritionally based diet and could potentially look be lacking in vitamin D or other supplements or. Oh. Or vitamins and stuff particularly we're going into the winter here in ireland so like vitamin d supplementation is going to mm -hmm. be needed we don't get a lot of sun here in general so mm -hmm. going into the dark winter is going to be people are going to need to supplement with it and there could be other people that are getting takeaways a couple of times a week but still could look lean or strong or whatever it may be on the outside but internally right. there's stuff that could be they could have digestive issues mm -hmm. they could have I don't know, colon issues or heart issues, or as you said, fatty liver issues. Mm. There's, there, it, it is very, very person dependent. And I think a lot of people try to train, change to 
things too much mm-hmm. with their diet or their nutrition rather than trying to say, right, what can I actually stick to and what's mm-hmm. going to work for me? And I think there are two questions. Like, I think I heard it on Sigma with Danny before Alan came along um, in relation to it. And he had someone on there like, if you can't stick to your diet for 10 years, not that you need to be in a weight loss diet for 10 years, but if you can't stick to the, your diet for mm-hmm. 10 years, then it's the wrong diet. And that wow. sentence is always just kind of like resonate with me. And that's what I kind of talk mm-hmm. about with clients on a daily basis. Um, and I think when people think that, it's like, well, I need to be in a weight loss diet for 10, 10 years. Like, no, 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 you're missing the point. Yeah. It's yeah. just like, it's figuring out what works for you. Um, Definitely. That no, and, and, and I like to think of these two exercise and nutrition as very interrelated. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned there someone might be underweight. And I think that's a, a really good point is um, – You'd be surprised the number of people that I've worked with who are are sort of training the house down, but they're they're actually undernourished. They're not f- underfueled. They're not fueling themselves adequately to actually support that training, the the exercise they're doing. So, um, I think that their you know exercise. Look, I wish exercise got more airtime. Because nutrition gets all the airtime, or it seems like most of the airtime, because yeah. there's a bit more fighting. Whereas everyone accepts that exercise is good, but the the sort of the the risk reductions you can get in cardiovascular disease and in total mortality by doing exercise, and really, to be honest, not doing that much. It does obviously you can continue to lower your risk by doing more um, up to a certain extent, but going from doing nothing to doing something has huge benefits on our on our health and the sort of effect size from a statistical point of view um, you know some of those are are actually far greater than you would get from making certain nutrition changes so I do think the con- context is really important here and um, just reiterating to people that it maybe exercise doesn't get as much um, airtime as nutrition but I would probably argue, and it's it's probably silly of a nutritionist to say this. It's just as important, if not more. I think I I think it, with the exercise, I agree with you. It doesn't get enough airtime, and I think there's like there's more research being put into it. There's the likes of Lane Norton and stuff being putting out three MJ all those kind of guys onto it. But the mental impact, I think, is something that isn't spoken about enough of the, mm. the the mental clarity the energy the desire to do it the kind of impact that it has on your overall cardiovascular fitness and also the ability to kind of almost if you have a family of leading by example of teaching the next generation to be a little sure. bit more active and i don't think the mental health aspect i don't know that was something that you want to talk about in relation to mental health in that i know in australia you guys are blessed with the sun for a majority of the year uh, and mm. you guys are super active you've got the sea if you because most of your country is on the coast mm. so you have to see a lot of the areas and stuff like that but if you were to if you were to restart your whole journey again and you wanted to kind of protect your kind of mental health and stuff what advice would you give back to yourself would it be mm. to start earlier would it be to yeah depend what would it be when you say start earlier as in start looking so. at my lifestyle or yeah. Jesus, this, this is a big question around um, mental health. Um, if I was to keep it short, I, I, I probably would just start with friendships and support network. Um, 
and having having relationships. It's you know not necessarily the quantity, but having some really good um, relationships in your life. And look, it doesn't have to be immediate family. Some people don't have immediate family around them um, in that sort of capacity. But people, and and this is actually one of the great things about the internet is that you know some of these relationships that people are building. Um, are actually helping improve their mental health and they wouldn't have those relationships if the internet didn't exist. Um, but just having some sort of support network, I think is is critical to be able to talk through things that you're experiencing, um, learn from other people's experiences. Um, so I'd, I'd probably start there around community and um, just being able to talk to other people and and having other people hear you really um even if they're not sure what to say it can be helpful um i think writing down as well so writing down the things that you're thinking um can be i know for me personally can be really helpful for getting clarity on 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 what i'm thinking and um sometimes that can be a really good exercise actually before having a conversation with someone else first work out what you are feeling um and you you asked whether I would start exercise and healthy eating earlier. Um, you know, if I had have if I had have known, I guess the role that nutrition could potentially play on mental health, then pe- perhaps I would have started that earlier. But also, I'm not sure that when I was younger, I would have really um, received that sort of information. I wasn't kind of in that stage of my life. Um, it wasn't something that was on my radar for me personally. Um, and an exercise that I had, I've always been very, very active. Um, but on the, on the point of, of diet, actually, also like exercise and mental health, it's very under-researched. Yeah. The, the, the studies on, on nutrition and how it affects mental health, a lot of them are of very poor quality. There's some cro- a lot of cross-sectional studies out there, which is, you know, let's get a group of people at one point in time, bring them in, assess their mental health, also ask them how they eat. And there's no temporal nature. So it's very difficult to see, you know, how does someone's um, mood change over time after they change their diet? Or did someone change their diet because of their mood? You can't tell this from a cross-sectional study at one time point. You need to track people over time. And I'm involved with a, a university in Queensland where we're actually starting to try. We're doing some preliminary stuff with the prospective cohort. So a prospective cohort um, data set, which is data that already exists. It's been collected over the last 40-odd years in Australia. Um, Hopefully, I'm allowed to talk about this. I think so. I'll keep it a little vague. Um, But essentially, there's data that already exists where every four years, they did look at how people were eating, and they also did have some different tools for assessing their mental health. And you know, there's decades of that data, so we're going to look at that. But that's just like a first step. It's an easy way to do a sort of study with data that exists. Ultimately, um, with the aim of of ho- hopefully being able, to, being able to put together some sort of clinical interventions, where you look at different diets um, and how they affect mental health, but. Um, Big topic, very important topic, and as you say, under-researched. Yeah, it's, it's interesting what you said there about kind of like if if you were talking about kind of eating healthier or exercising a little bit more, you may not have been in the place to receive that information when you were mm-hmm. younger. I probably I would I would equate to that. 
and mm. I would kind of like my kind of like so-called journey didn't really start until like I played football all the way up until maybe 25 26 went a little bit left field and then back to it at like 30. so 30 is still mm. young but people would say mm. that's late enough to start a fitness journey because you look at other people and you talk to other people in the fitness industry they're like been doing it since they're 15 mm. or 16. but it doesn't matter when yeah, you start when, and and when I was sort of you know 20 the conversation about mental health was different particularly yeah. for for a male you know i was i was i was playing footballs in the, the football club environments to talk about your mental health was considered a weakness so I'm, I'm just not sure that you know anyone any of my friends would have at that point in time been open to listening to you know well did you know that if you do this this and this in your lifestyle it's better for your mental health i think it would have gone in one ear and out the other ear um and it's taken maturity on my part and probably just maturity i think from society in general to shift the conversation around mental health um to the point where hopefully now um, younger and younger people are aware that it's not a weakness and that's a conversation that we need to be having more and more and um you know hopefully we have more and more funding so that the the tools that we can give people are continually getting better and better i think that's a very well said i know there was other questions and stuff but i think that the kind of like the leaving it on the mental health side of things is a, is a great way to kind of finish up the the chat i've absolutely loved the chat it's gone off on rants it's gone off on tangents and i i, I, love, <laughs> I love those episodes because it's sometimes it can be too uh structures yeah. and i think when we go a little bit free flow and it's a little bit like there was stuff about sleep there was stuff about hit training there was stuff about good health but i think we hit good health in there already mm -hmm. so simon thank you so much for coming on where can people find out about the podcast where can people find you on social media where can people work with you sure thanks um shane i appreciate the the opportunity to come on today hopefully didn't um rant too much brevity is not my um <laughs> my my strongest uh trait um people can find me on social media on instagram at simon hill um twitter at the proof and then if you want to to listen to uh more of what i have to say then you can go over to my podcast which is the proof um with simon hill it's an amazing podcast and if it, it's there's a lot of studies and a lot of research and stuff into it but they're dissecting years and years of information and they are explaining it too and bringing it breaking it down so it, it's highly recommended simon thank you so much for for coming on thanks shane appreciate it i really hope you have enjoyed that episode with simon hill and i think the biggest lesson that i took out of that and was kind of challenging that narrative of what is a healthy diet i think when people kind of we go for this tribal mentality towards i need to be on this diet or my diet needs a name or whatever it may be and i think that definition of what a healthy diet is is it's improving or having a good relationship with food. I think that's a tactic or something that a lot of people overlook. We're so transfixed on what we should look like. We are so fixated on what we should be weighing, but we don't necessarily look at how are we disengaging from food? How are we disengaging from what we believe in? Or how we're disengaging in from how we how we see food on a day-to-day -day basis because food ultimately isn't going anywhere and we need to adapt how we see ourselves because often it's not the food that's the issue the issue is normally how we are, see ourselves and how we project onto the food so really hope you guys have enjoyed that episode with simon hill 
as always guys please do tag us up on your stories please do share it amongst your friends be really here cool to hear some feedback on it as well if you're interested in working with me on a one-to-one capacity head over to www.shanewalshfitness.com if you want to work with me on the the, the female fat loss program head over to the, the same website and happy to answer any questions please re- please review please share please share amongst your friends thank you very much for listening to the episode